Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Hebrews, the fifth chapter, where my Bible is opened up. And if you'd be finding Hebrews chapter 5, that would be most helpful. We're going to read a set of verses here that has very much underscored our preaching theme on growing and increasing this year. And I want to revisit this passage one more time as we get underway this morning in this part of our worship. As you're turning to Hebrews chapter 5, I will echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody today. We've got a great number in attendance. We've got guests with us. We appreciate so much the fact that you've come to be here and just been encouraged by our time together already, the good singing and the good prayer that was offered as we've come before our Father's throne to offer Him the gift of our worship. And what a wonderful opportunity we have right now to be challenged, to be stirred up, and to be encouraged by the living Word of God. Let's read in the text together. This is Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11, and we're going to spill over into chapter 6. In Hebrews 5 and in verse 11, the writer says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Imagine a young mother brings her newborn baby to church for the very first time. Maybe this baby's only a couple of weeks old. What's going to happen when that young mother brings that child to church for the very first time? Well, everybody's going to be thronging around. Everybody's going to be lined up to get the chance to see that newborn baby. Everybody's going to be cooing at that baby. Everybody's going to be asking for the opportunity. Well, maybe not everybody, but lots of people are going to ask for the opportunity to get to hold that baby, to get to pick it up and to have it in their arms. All of us are going to be excited to see that new baby. But then imagine as time goes along, the mother continues to bring herself and the child to church over the course of some weeks. And those weeks turn into months. And eventually those months turn into a year. Imagine that after about a year or so of coming to church, somebody notices that, well, that baby, that baby's not growing. In fact, it is still the same size that it was a year ago when I first got to hold it in my arms. And not only is that baby still the same size that it was as a newborn baby, but that baby as well is not able to do stuff that it ought to be able to do at this point. It's not able to roll over. It's not able to crawl. It's not able to talk and say some things. There's not any progress going on there. Something, it seems, has stunted the growth of that child. And that would be cause for concern for us, wouldn't it? We'd be going to that young mother. Maybe she doesn't notice this, but we do. And we, we start voicing our concerns to her. We say, hey, you, you need to take that child to the doctor. You need to have some tests run on that baby. Something is seriously wrong there. That's not the way this is supposed to be. We'd want to get to the bottom of whatever it is that is stymieing the growth of that child. Well, in many ways, that is exactly what the Hebrew writer is trying to do in Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Because he writes here to a group of Christians who were not growing, not physically, but they were not growing spiritually. And he wants to know, hey guys, what's the problem? You know, you started out as babes in Christ. We all start out as babes in Christ. That's perfectly normal. But some time has passed now and, well, you haven't grown. You're still babies. 
You're not making the kind of spiritual development that you ought to have made by this point. Why haven't you grown? And the truth of the matter is that the problem that the Hebrew Christians were having then is one that is still problematic for Christians even today, and that is stunted growth. Now, sometimes that stunting of the growth process, it does happen with brand new Christians, where they don't seem to advance much further than the waters of the baptistry. They just don't say, I mean, they got baptized, they got saved, but not a whole lot else happens after that. But you know what? Many other times, that stunting of the growth process, it also happens with Christians who, who do have a little bit of age and a little bit of experience and a little bit of maturity about them. But we end up just reaching kind of a spot in our Christianity and in our walk with God where we just kind of get stuck. We're just kind of stuck in neutral. We reach a place where our walk with the Lord is it's stale and it's fruitless. There's not a lot happening there. It's not thriving. We're not growing. What causes that to happen? What kind of things can, can happen that will stunt spiritual growth? Well, that's exactly the thrust of what I want to talk about today. This morning and this evening, I want to give some attention to what stunts growth. This evening at 6 o'clock, I want to consider some of the attitudes that stunt church growth. What kind of things hinder a congregation and keep a congregation from growing spiritually and even numerically? But of course you realize that congregations, local churches, are made up of individuals. Individual Christians. Which is why this morning I want to first talk about what stunts individual growth. What stunts personal growth. What are some common mistakes that we make, and yes, I am talking this morning about problems that are self-inflicted. What are some things that we do that serve to inhibit spiritual growth? And I do this morning, I do want to look beyond just kind of the obvious, not praying, not reading my Bible, not coming to worship services regularly, not doing any self-examination. Those things are, I think those things are a given. And I trust that you already knew that before you ever even came into this building this morning. That if you're not praying, and if you're not reading your Bible, and if you're not coming to services regularly, and if you're not examining yourself regularly, then then you cannot ever expect to grow. I trust that those are no-brainers and that those are obvious. This morning, I want to put the spotlight instead on some other things. Some things that we do to ourselves that limit our growth in the kingdom. And this morning I'm going to share with you just three of those attitudes, three of those actions that will in fact stunt spiritual growth as disciples. I want to identify those things. I want to rebuke those things. And I want then hopefully for us to be convicted enough that we will change those things as we see them rearing their ugly heads in our lives. Are you ready for that? Three things that are guaranteed to stunt your growth. And that all begins with this first one. And that is whenever you are striving for minimums in your service to the Lord, your growth is going to be stunted. I read an article last week about a phenomenon that is sweeping across college campuses around the country, particularly at this time of year, as finals week is approaching. Because before many students ever even crank open the textbook and begin to study for the final exam, they are first spending an inordinate amount of time performing a very important mathematical calculation. Do you know what that calculation is? 
They are sitting down and they are figuring out mathematically what is the lowest score that they can get on their final exam and still make a passing grade in the class. And so, for example, imagine that the total amount of points that you could accumulate through the course of a semester in this particular class is a thousand points. Here's all the homework, here's all the tests, here's all the papers, you add all that up. The maximum score that you could receive is 1,000 points. And so what that would mean is that would mean I would need at least a 900 out of those 1,000 points to average a 90, and that would get me an A. Well, if before the final exam comes, if I've already accumulated 827 points, well, then all I need to make on that final exam is a 73. That's like a C-. minus in order for me to then come out with an A at the end of the semester. And so what I'll do is I'll study just enough to get a 73, just enough to get a C-. minus. That's the bare minimum that I need to achieve in order to gain the desired result. I mean, after all, why should I strive and do all that work to get a 100 when I can put in far less effort that will take far less time and still get an A in the end, right? And that is what the author of that particular article entitled Scholastic Mediocrity. And while that attitude is certainly very prevalent in our schools, and that kind of mediocrity is evident even in the workplace, you've probably noticed that from time to time, unfortunately, it's not just limited to those areas. That kind of mediocrity oftentimes rears its ugly head in Christianity. Far too many Christians are only interested in the bare minimums of discipleship. Where I'll do just enough to squeak by. I'll do just enough to keep from going to hell. I'll do just enough to eke my way through the pearly gates. And it's not that hard really to determine whether or not you are one of those people. Because the bare minimum Christian never strives for maximums. Oh, no, 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 no. They do not go above and beyond the call of duty for the Lord. They are not interested in pursuing excellence, getting a 100% on the test. They're not interested in that. No, they're satisfied with mediocrity. I mean, come on. Why come to all three services of the weekly, of the weekly services of the church when, when I can just come to one and pretty much bang out all the things that need to be banged out off the checklist? Or, you know, do I really need to read the Bible and pray Every single day? You know, where does it say that in the Bible that I have to do that? And you know, just exactly how holy do I have to be? I mean, come on. What's the least amount of modesty? What's the least amount of sobriety? What's the least amount of purity that I can get by with? I want to know exactly where that line is so that I can cozy up right next to it. If all of that sounds troubling to you, I should tell you that's not a new phenomenon. That's not unique to Christians living in the 21st century. That's a mindset that actually was prevalent in the days of Jesus. Would you look in Matthew 19, please? In Matthew chapter 19, we read here about a man who was aiming squarely and only for the minimums. In Matthew chapter 19, we meet this man that we have come to know as the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 16, and he asks a very good question. He says, Teacher, what must I do... To have eternal life? That's a good question. That's a great question. Jesus responds to his question at the end of verse 17 by saying, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. That's that's pretty straightforward stuff, isn't it? Keep the commandments. 
This man, though, seeking only to do the bare minimum, he asked Jesus in verse 18, which ones? Which ones specifically, Jesus? Come on, there's a lot of commandments given in the Scriptures. Which ones do you mean in particular? Because surely you don't mean keep all of them. And to Jesus' credit, Jesus actually humors the man. He just lists off six of them. In verse 19, excuse me, in verse 18, Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 19, He says, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, well, all these I have kept. What do I still like? This guy says, great, I can do that. In fact, I'm already doing those six things. That's a piece of cake for me. I've been doing those things ever since I was a kid. I'm good to go. I, I think I'm ready to go to heaven now. And Jesus says in verse 21, whoa, 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 whoa. Just one more thing. You need to go and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. Then... Then you will be complete. And it is at that point that verse 22 tells us that the man turns and walks away exceedingly sorrowful. Why was that man sorrowful? I believe it's because he came to the realization that following Jesus takes more. It takes more effort than he was willing to expend. And I wonder how many Christians today are going to be disappointed on the day of judgment when they learned that their entire approach to Christianity, that it was woefully anemic, and that not only did they not grow as a child of God, but now they are not invited to go and live with God. That minimalist mindset will keep people out of heaven. Look with me in Luke the 14th chapter. You tell me. You read these verses with me in Luke chapter 14. And you tell me if just being a bare minimum, mediocre, pew-filler Christian, if that's going to cut it with the Lord. In Luke chapter 14, look in verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Drop down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus envisions discipleship as giving your all to serve the King of Kings. Where we are striving for maximum devotion, maximum commitment, maximum service in the kingdom. In fact, when we are merely content with that kind of C-minus, Sunday morning only version of Christianity, not only do we deprive ourselves of the opportunity to grow and to be more in the kingdom, but furthermore, we rob ourselves of the joy and the blessing of knowing that I have given the Lord my very best. That the one who is the best of heaven, I gave Him the very best that I possibly could give. Honestly now. Do we imagine that we serve a bare minimum Savior? Did Jesus do just enough to barely get by? Did He just barely suffer? Just barely die? Did He question the Father at every turn about all the sacrifices that He had to make? Lord, do I really have to? No. Jesus gave everything in a stunning sacrifice. Jesus went beyond minimum effort. 
Jesus went even beyond maximum effort in order to free you and I from the bondage of sin. How then do we imagine that we can possibly please the One who did so much with this sort of how little can I do and still get by sort of attitude? If I am going to grow spiritually, then I'm going to need to shed myself of the bare minimum mentality. And I'm going to need to wholeheartedly pursue the Lord. We're going to need a dose of what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 10 where he says to excel still more. We're striving for excellence in His service. That, that's the recipe for growth. Anything less, anything less is only going to stunt our growth. Just like this second thing will stunt our growth. And that is whenever we surround ourselves with spiritual losers. Now, usually, whenever we talk about the people that we surround ourselves with, our companions and friendships, where's that sermon going? More often than not, we direct that kind of sermon to young people. We want our young people to give some thought and to be careful about the people that they associate with. That when they go to school, you need to be very selective in the people that you make friends with. We tell them some things about how evil companions corrupt good morals. We don't want our kids to befriend people who are selling drugs and who are, you know, tattooed gutter rats. Kids, stay away from the tattooed gutter rats. Don't go around befriending rats, okay? That's bad. And I understand why we preach those lessons and I understand why our kids need to hear those lessons. But you know what? It's not just our young people who need to consider the influence of their companions. Would you look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 23? In 1 Samuel 23, here's a wonderful passage that helps us to think about our associations and to think about it from a positive standpoint. Because when we see this principle from the positive standpoint, we'll better understand how it works in the negative way. Notice what a good friend can do for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, this is the example of David and Jonathan. Such great friends in the Bible. And this is during an incredibly difficult time in the life of David. He's on the run from King Saul. His life is in danger. I would imagine there was a strong temptation for David to shrink back in his faith and in his devotion to the Lord. But in that moment, look at what the text tells us. In 1 Samuel 23, this is verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, he rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. At a time when some cracks started to appear in David's spiritual armor, Jonathan comes along and he reminds him of some important truths. Jonathan comes along and encourages him in the Lord. Jonathan comes along and says, let's serve God together. Now I'm asking you this morning, who is your Jonathan? Who in your life strengthens your hand in God? Who is it that pushes you to greater heights of service in the kingdom? Who is it that makes you want to be a better Christian? Who is it that their influence and their example, that when you're around them and when you see them and when you talk with them, you just want to grow and you want to do more in the kingdom of God? That, that's the kind of friends that we need. And yet far too often what happens is, is we, settle for, we settle for far less than that in our friendships. 
In fact, I've kind of categorized it down into two or three different groups. Sometimes what we do is we settle for, we settle for the tells you what you want to hear friend. You know who this friend is? This is the friend who says exactly what you want them to say. This is the person who does exactly what you want them to do. This is the friend who is nothing more than a glad hander. In fact, in many ways, this isn't even a friend. This is just a groupie. This is someone who would never ever come to you and point out your flaws. They would never do the thing that Nathan did to David and say, hey, you are the man. They would never point out inconsistencies in your life. Certainly would never identify sin in your life. No, instead, this is the friend who just kind of smiles and laughs and just goes along with whatever it is that makes you happy. In fact, in many ways, these are like the buddies that Rehoboam had in 1 Kings chapter 12. You remember those buddies? Patted Rehoboam on the back, even in the midst of Rehoboam's stupidity and folly. And while friends like that, yeah, they're pretty loyal, they're pretty devoted, those are not the kinds of friends who are going to push you. They're not going to challenge you to be more in your service to God. No, these are the kinds of friends who are actually just going to make you feel pretty well satisfied with who and what you are right now as a Christian. Or what about this group? What about the, well, not all that serious about God friend? Do you know this friend? This is the friend who, yeah, they, they believe in God. They, they have some faith. They go to church sometimes, somewhere. They certainly wouldn't discourage you from going to church or practicing your Christianity, but you know what? They're also not going to encourage you in practicing your Christianity. Because as soon as you start talking to them and you maybe mention some spiritual things in conversation, as soon as you start saying things like, hey, you know, I was reading in the Bible the other day and, man, this just really caught my attention. Or, hey, you know, here's some things going on at church and how I'm trying to kind of ratchet up my level of involvement and what's going on in the church there. Eventually, those conversations come to a grinding halt because the response is nothing more than, oh, that's nice, good for you. And then there's kind of a nervousness to switch the topic of conversation instead of talking about these religious things. Listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a friend like that. All of us, I would suspect, have friends like that. But what I'm asking is, is does that relationship, does it cause us to be more Christ-like? Or does it maybe drag us down to be less Christ-like? Or what about this? What about the friend who just really has no ambition? Specifically, no spiritual ambition. They do have ambition. This is the friend who has ambition to binge a whole series on Netflix over the weekend. Wow, I really did something. This is the friend who, when you start talking to them about music or about movies or about you know sports or about politics, oh, they're all over that conversation. Yeah, I'm really all about that. But as soon as you mention the first thing about the Bible or something of a spiritual nature, they couldn't care less. Not interested in that at all. In fact, what may happen is as you do try to talk about spiritual things, this is the friend who may even make kind of some disparaging comments, may kind of make little sarcastic jabs and digs. Oh, oh, Cody over there going to church again. Oh, Stacy, she's such a goody-goody. Always got to be doing the right thing. These are the kinds of friends who just have a way of just kind of beating down our spirit. And they keep us from excelling and being all that God wants us to be. When I was a freshman in college, I made friends with a guy by the name of Brandon. And we we had several classes together, and uh, we lived in the same dorm, come to find out. 
And on top of that, we had a lot of things in common. We had similar interest in music. We, we, we liked the same sports. Uh, we had kind of a similar sense of humor. But what I learned fairly quickly was Brandon was not a Christian. In fact, not only was he not a Christian, he just really was not even interested in spiritual and religious things. He had a potty mouth. That was clue number one. He was very involved in worldly things. That was clue number two. And he really had no good thing at all to say about church or about Christianity. And after a while, what I began to realize, even though I like hanging around him and we do some stuff and we talk about things that we had interest in, eventually I began to realize that I was growing embarrassed to ever say anything about God or anything about the Bible or anything of a spiritual nature when I was in his company, when I was in his presence. He wasn't necessarily dragging me into the worldly things that he was doing. But instead, what he was doing is he was just causing me to become more and more of a closet Christian. Finally, one day I woke up and I realized, this guy is inhibiting me spiritually. He's holding me back. And it was like a news flash scrolled across the top of my mind. You don't have to hang around this guy. You get to decide. You get to choose your friends. And so on that day, I made the decision to cut him out of my life. Very carefully, very thoughtfully, but very firmly. I chose to stop hanging around him. I chose to stop being in his circle. And gradually, he drifted away from me. And that turned out to be a tremendous blessing in disguise. Because he was inhibiting, he was obstructing, he was hindering my growth. Can I show you that in the Proverbs? Look in Proverbs 13, please. In Proverbs 13, listen to what the wise man says about companions. In Proverbs chapter 13, this is verse 20. Here we get both the positive and the negative. In Proverbs chapter 13 and in verse 20, the wise man says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools, spiritual losers, will suffer harm. I know which side of the equation I want to be on. I want to walk with the wise. I want to surround myself with as many Jonathans as I possibly can. People who will make me stronger. People who will make me wiser. People who will make me better. Because the alternative there is to surround myself with people who are spiritually bankrupt and I end up allowing those people to drag me down to their level. That is a surefire way to stunt your growth in Jesus Christ. And that is especially true for this third and final idea this morning. Growth is always, without doubt, growth is always going to be hindered whenever you continually fail to learn from the mistakes of the past. Have you ever heard the story about the woman who had, she had multiple marriages, married like four or five times, And each time she got married to just rotten, awful, abusive men, and each one of those marriages, one by one by one by one by one, they all ended in terrible, messy, ugly divorces. And after going through that process four or five times, four or five just terrible, awful relationships like that, she finally said, you know what? It's getting to where you can't even find a good man at a bar anymore. Yep. You get exactly what you paid for, lady. That woman is exhibit A for why it is so critical that we learn from our mistakes. She should have learned on the first pass not to be going fishing in that place. Are you still in Proverbs? Look in Proverbs chapter 9. 
In Proverbs chapter 9, this is verse 8. In Proverbs chapter 9 and in verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Hey, there's some guys that are growing there. Part of the wonderful capacity of being human is that God has given us the ability to think and to rationalize and to examine and to learn and to then do better. You know, even a three-year-old may make the terrible mistake of putting their hand on a hot stove once. But after that one time, they will learn and they will think about that and they will examine that and they will not do it again. Sometimes, unfortunately, as adults, we don't do a very good job of that. We don't do the Proverbs chapter 9 thing, where the reproof and the instruction and the examination that we might receive, that it helps to bring about knowledge and wisdom and betterment. Instead, what happens is we make mistakes, particularly sinful mistakes, and we don't profit from that. We don't stop and look at that. We don't take a step back and consider it. We don't pay attention to what's happened there. We don't evaluate why that happened. We don't pay attention to how that might be able to be avoided in the future. And as a result, we don't learn from it. We end up finding, Proverbs 26, did you find 26? In Proverbs 26, what happens is we find ourselves stuck in the same cycle of folly and error, folly and error, where we are the living embodiment of Proverbs 26, verse 11, catch this, like a dog that returns to his own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. There's a, there's a pleasant mental image, isn't it? And I think sometimes when you read a verse like that, and we probably get hung up on the grossness of the vomit thing, but really the most stinging part of that metaphor is that Solomon is saying is that oftentimes we are as dumb as the dog who keeps going back and doing that. We squander the precious opportunities to learn and to grow from the past and instead we just kind of blunder into repeated and repeated and repeated efforts. The consummate example of that in the Bible to me of someone who never seemed to learn from his mistakes would be King Saul. Here is a guy who in the book of 1 Samuel, he is given every advantage. He is given every opportunity to to succeed. And he just blows it. Here's a guy who had Samuel, a prophet of the Lord, right there at his beck and call. Here's a guy who had Jonathan, this extremely godly son that he could call upon at any time. He had David, a man after God's own heart, right there in his back pocket. He had all these good influences who tried to help him. On top of that, he had the Lord's endorsement, at least in the beginning. And he had the support of a mighty nation in Israel. And yet, over and over and over again, we see Saul just making a mess of things and never ever improving. Just catalog it throughout 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13, he's offering unlawful sacrifices. Chapter 14, he makes a rash vow that nearly causes his son to die. Chapter 15, he fails to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Partial obedience. Chapter 17, he's a coward as he cowers at Goliath. Chapter 18, he's jealous of David, who was not cowardly of Goliath. Chapter 19, he attempts to murder David. He just keeps getting worse here. Chapter 22, he slaughters the priests of God. And finally in chapter 28, he's actually consulting a medium. 
in all of that time, over that long span of time, there were numerous opportunities to learn and to grow from his mistakes. And yet through all of that, Saul seemed utterly incapable of evaluating himself and saying, man, how did I get into this mess? Where did I go wrong here? Samuel, could you help me out here to figure out where I messed up? David, could you help get me back on track to where I need to be? Never. Not once do we see him improving from his past mistakes. Rather, things just go from bad to badder to baddest to worse. You want to see the opposite of that? Take a look at the life of the Apostle Peter. Peter's failures and Peter's mistakes are written large across the New Testament. Everybody knows about the big, public, fall-flat-on-your-face mistakes that Peter makes. He nearly drowned in the sea. He denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. He gets sucked into hypocritical Jew-first movement. Peter's got all kinds of failures and problems in Scripture. And yet, what happens with Peter? All of those mistakes in Peter's life, they just serve to be as stepping stones. They serve as stepping stones where he learns and he improves, and he gets better, and he grows from those things. Would you look in 2 Peter chapter 1? In 2 Peter chapter 1, you remember that really embarrassing moment at the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter didn't know what to say, and so he just kind of makes this, blurts out this foolish suggestion to, hey, let's, let's build three tabernacles, one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I'll have you know that Peter does not try to hide from that event. Peter does not try to erase that from his memory and doesn't want anybody to ever know about what happened up there on the mountain. No. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wants to talk about it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, this is verse 17, Peter says there, For we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you do well, to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter does not back away from the transfiguration. Peter does not have all kinds of shame and embarrassment. Oh, I hope nobody asks me about what I said up there. I hope nobody knows what I did up there. No. At this scene of failure... Peter learned a valuable lesson, and that is pay attention to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter remembers that. And he then uses that later in his life to encourage others, to encourage his readers to do the same. Pay attention to Jesus. Listen to his word. Peter grew from that experience. And so must you and I with our failures. Are you ready for the uncomfortable part of all this? Think right now of a mistake that you've made. Think of a mistake that you've made in the last week, in in the last seven days. What's a mistake that you've made? Maybe it's a sinful mistake. Your temper got the best of you. Your emotions got the best of you. You lashed out and said something you really wish you shouldn't have said. Maybe it's just a blunder. It's not a sinful thing. It's just a blunder. Maybe you you forgot to set your alarm or didn't turn the stove off or whatever it may be. Can I ask you... What did you learn from that? Did you learn anything from that? Did you spend any time reflecting on that? Hey, 
How did that happen? How did I find myself in that situation? And how can I do differently the next time so that it's not the same outcome as before? What are you learning from your mistakes? If we'll take the time to think and to examine and to then make adjustments and corrections, I believe the Bible shows that we will grow from that. But you know what? The person who's too prideful, the person who's all into saving face, the person who's in denial about the things that they've done, the person who will not listen to a rebuke, that person cannot and that person will not grow. You will stunt your own growth whenever you refuse to learn from the mistakes of the past. Now, there's probably several other things that could be added to this list. These are just three things that I've thought of throughout the course of this year and I wanted to be able to work them into a sermon in some form. And for as much as we would be concerned about a baby who is showing signs of, of stunted growth physically, and we would be concerned about all the health problems that maybe that is a symptom of, how much more concern should we have for a Christian, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, ourselves, someone who is stuck in neutral spiritually, and we're not growing in the Lord? You know, that's a problem that doesn't just have kind of physical, temporary consequences. That's a problem that has eternal consequences. And that is why the Hebrew writer in that opening passage this morning, he is urging his readers then, and I believe he is urging his audience even now, to take inventory. Let's figure out what it is that is hindering our progress. Let's figure out how we can take some decisive action to get it fixed. And just as we delight to see a little baby grow and develop and start to be everything that it possibly can be in this life, so too does our Heavenly Father. He delights to see His children. He delights to see us when we grow and we grow and we grow and we attain to spiritual maturity. And I hope this morning that these ideas will help us to work on clearing out some things, some of those encumbrances that stunt our growth, the kinds of things that prevent us from being everything that we possibly can be in Christ Jesus. In fact, it may be that there is someone here this morning who is not being everything that they can be in Christ Jesus. You're not being the kind of Christian that God can truly delight in because you're not living faithfully or because you are not giving God your best. You're, you're giving the minimums instead of the maximums. You're not growing, you're not excelling as a disciple. And maybe this morning what you are realizing is that I need to make some changes. I do, I need to make some serious changes in my life. If that is the case, then brother or sister, we stand ready to help you this very moment to get things turned around. That's called repentance. I'm going to turn away from those things. I'm going to turn to a better way of doing things. I'm going to seek the Father's face in prayer and in help. I'm going to turn my brothers and sisters to encourage me and to lift me up. And if we can do that, we'd love to help you to start serving the Lord in a better way. There may be, though, someone here this morning who's not even a Christian at all. But you're of an age of accountability. You understand some things about the Gospel. And you recognize your dire need for forgiveness and for the salvation that's found only in Christ. Why don't you take the very first steps in the growth process by submitting, surrendering your life to Christ, confessing Him as God's Son, being baptized in water for the remission of your sins, being added to the family of God. You can become a Christian. and You can then begin that journey, that process, that really is just a lifetime 
of growing in the Lord. Don't let Satan stunt your growth in any way today. Let's all be determined that we're going to just push on. We're going to press on through to spiritual maturity. If we can help you to that end, would you make take advantage of this moment right now? Do that while we stand and while we sing.